Okay, it is time for another episode of IoT This Week. I'm your host, Craig Smith. We are on episode 25. So for this week, we have IoT botnets get crazier, fast and furious car hacking, IoT devices no one asked for, more data breaches, and Uber spiral continues, and much more on IoT This Week. So let's get started with IoT. So cities are starting to use IoT to map air quality, and they're doing that by adding sensors to existing infrastructure, which is pretty cool. So they're adding uh, adding sensors to things like uh, lampposts and so forth. They're also using mobile sensors, and they're pairing sensors with mobile phone data. So a few examples, Chicago has deployed sensors on lampposts, like I mentioned, to track the presence of carbon monoxide, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, and particulate matter. Dublin put sensors on a bike share program to monitor some of the same things that Chicago did. And New York City used anonymized mobile phone data and then combined that with existing air quality data to actually better understand exposure to people in areas of poor air quality. So some cool uses that uh, cities are starting to do as far as quality of life and so forth using IoT devices. And then our next article talks about some things to address IoT security. So a lot of these things are things that have been mentioned in the past and have been mentioned um, for various other things for a long time. But it's always worth hearing these things and having them re-mentioned again. So according to the article, some of the things to address in IoT IoT security are passwords, obviously, um, old software, something that we've seen and heard, um, seen stories about. In the news where IoT devices are using like super old uh, versions of software or, or web servers or whatever on the IoT device. If you don't need it, don't keep it. Uh, when it comes to you know data you might be collecting and so forth, don't give away too much data or too much info, um, cross-site scripting, physical access attacks, and using um, security measures that have actually been tested and retested and verified um, before you actually deploy these to IoT devices. So just a just a little article article on uh, some things to do um, when addressing security with IoT. And then something that was interesting, um, although not it wasn't surprising at all, um, but it was uh, still interesting nonetheless. So as part of um, the McAfee Labs threat report, which came out um, this month. They did an experiment where they basically put a Mirai honeypot on the internet, and it only took 59 seconds for attempted code execution on that honeypot. So, while that's not uh, while that's not surprising, um, it's still it's still it's pretty cool that uh, it only took 59 seconds for uh, things the honeypot to start getting attacked. I mean, if you put like a Windows Windows uh, host out on the internet and you don't actually lock it down, you leave the ports open, then it's, yeah, it's pretty much game over and probably doesn't take less. It probably takes about the same amount of time to to um, compromise a Windows host when you stick it on the internet as well. So anyway, some interesting things from the uh, McAfee Labs threat report. And then what would a week be without some new IoT malware? So we've got some new malware out there called Hajim. Um, probably not even close to pronouncing that right, H-A-J-I-M-E. So it's spreading and creating a botnet with estimates of around 100,000 infections so far. The interesting part of this malware is that it doesn't use traditional command and control, but instead it uses parts of peer-to-peer BitTorrent protocols, 
which is completely decentralized and is going to be a whole lot harder to stop. Instead of like going after you know one or two command and control servers, um, this place this thing is going to going to be completely like decentralized. And one of the other things the article noted was that this particular malware, for whatever reason, is also targeting um, mainly targeting uh, devices with ARM chips in it. So yet a, yet another um, IoT malware showing up. And then we have this story, which is pretty interesting, um, from a security researcher named Dan Demeter. Um, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, anyway, he set up some IoT honeypots, like he would set up his own at various um, like VPS providers. He also put them up at friends' houses and so forth. So he collected all this data in this in this uh, for these IoT honeypots. Um, so one of the things he did um, mention or mentioned as part of the research were the countries that were most probed. And this is probably not surprising, but um, China and South Korea were the most probed, um, followed by the U.S. and Japan. So again, an interesting article on some of the things he did. A lot of this is, a lot of these honeypots are things, once you do one, it's simple to, um, you know, bring up these things and have them reporting back to a central server and kind of collect this data your own. Um, if you're interested in this kind of thing, it's very worthwhile and you get very interesting data back when you uh, throw up some of these honeypots. Um, there's a lot of lot of the modern honey modern honey network which I use. It's pretty easy to set up, um, and then once you get them set up, assuming you're at a provider or VPS provider that can clone the images, um, you can basically bring up as many as you want and bring them up in various area various um, service areas that the VPS provides. But anyway, um, like I said, it's an interesting article and it might be something you want to try on your own. And then we have an article if you are interested in, in deploying IoT devices, like you're a manufacturer or you want to put stuff on the devices out on the market. The article basically talks about four critical steps to ensure success with IoT. So the first one is cut through complexity. So if you haven't messed with IoT devices, um, one of the things is there's not really any standards. There's a multitude of protocols. Um, there's all kinds of different data formats and so forth. So you really, if you're going to deploy something on that scale, you really needed to figure. You really need to figure out what kind of like data transmission protocol you're going to use. You know how you're going to collect this data and so forth. So the second thing they mention is to make your data useful. Um, I think that. Obviously, that goes without saying. Um, you can throw these devices out there, you know, collect tons of data, but you're either going to get overwhelmed by the amount of data or you're going to have so much data that you don't know how to use it. Um, so you really need to narrow down exactly what the purpose of the device is and exactly what kind of data you want to collect. The other thing, the third thing is architect for your analytics. Again, um, you can collect tons of data, but you really need to figure out, you know, what kind of you know, what's the purpose of your, your device? Um, what kind of analytics do you want to collect with this device to make it useful and that sort of thing? And then the last one, of course, is secure opportunities. And for this one, they're basically saying, take security into account um, before you throw the product out on the market, you connect to the internet and so forth. Um, but a lot of times these, as we mentioned before in the podcast, a lot of these manufacturers, they're just in a hurry to get these products out on the market. And security really doesn't come into play. But I think as, as you hear more and more um, about botnets, um, new ma IoT malware and so forth, I think it, at some point the manufacturers are going to be left with no other choice but to um, ensure security is um, part of the uh, development process. 
And then one of the links I put in the show notes, um, I thought it would be uh, pretty fun. Um, you can check it out. But basically, it talks about how the car hacking scene, the big car hacking scene in Fate of the Furious. So if you haven't seen this film, um, they do just a crazy like car hacking scene in there where they just like hack thousands of cars and they're basically... Um, it's basically, it just looks like a big swarm of cars and, you know, they're controlling them. They send them all in a specific direction. But, um, if you haven't seen the movie, um, that scene, that scene by itself is almost worth it. Um, the obvious thing, when you actually see the scene, there's probably, you'll probably notice that there's cars in there that probably wouldn't have any business being hacked because some of them are older. Um, and then some of the cars, even if they do, um, were able to be be hacked. A lot of them don't have the ability to actually, you know, drive and um, steer themselves and so forth, other than things like parallel parking and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, obviously it's a film, it's a little far-fetched, but it is, nonetheless, it's uh, still a pretty cool scene um, involving car hacking. And then we have um, more flaws found in Linksys routers by IO Active. Um, not surprising that they and other security researchers find flaws in uh, um, routers, whether it's Linksys or D-Link or whoever. Um, but the cool thing here um, in the story is that they actually were able to, or Linksys was actually willing to work with IOActive and come up with a plan to address a lot of the security issues that uh, IOActive found. So, so just a cool little story of actually a manufacturer cooperating or working with a um, security company to... Um, you know, fix their vulnerabilities in their IoT devices. So the next story is pretty interesting, especially if you're into tinkering with the Raspberry Pi and, you know, using the Raspberry Pi to make little IoT devices at home um, for yourself. So basically the article is seven Raspberry Pi projects you can make on your own. So some of the projects they came up with were rather interesting. Um, the first one is a Wi-Fi access point. A home. The next one is a home security system. Um, the third one, um, pretty interesting, a fart detector. Um, because why not? Who doesn't need a fart detector in their house? A digital library. A streaming internet radio. You can use the, or one of the projects is for creating your own weather station. And the last one is create your own theremin. And if you don't know what theremins are, basically they are... Um, musical instruments in which you don't have to touch anything. So you just interact with the signal from antennas to uh, create music. So I haven't really ever heard of that, but hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. But uh, that actually sounds pretty cool. And then next up, we have the story of flat transistors. So scientists at Trinity College, Dublin, they developed transistors made of 2D nanomaterials. So basically what this allows allows to happen is that they can basically um, embed these transistors in basically anything. So clothing, newspapers, cartons of milk, um, whatever, whatever you can think of can basically be internet connected. Um, that's both cool and scary at the same time. So we'll see where this goes. They, they estimate this is going to be, you know, probably 10 years or something down the road before it actually starts showing up in consumer products. Um, but yeah, there's all kinds of cool implications. And then, like I said, there's also scary implications of this. Um, but anyway, so yeah, flat transistors using nanomaterial. Pretty cool. And then we have a company, Wyland, W-I-L-A-N. So they're basically a company that has typically um, licensed wireless technology patents. So from the story, it sounds like there's um, not, not that they're a patent troll or anything. I mean, I don't think they are. Um, like you hear with um, 
you know, other areas where basically companies, um, they don't actually make any products. They actually, all they do is buy up patents and they, um, try to license them out to people, other companies. And if they, then if they don't, and they think they're, you know, another company's violating their patent rights, then they'll sue them to try to make money off of that as well. So anyway, so this company, um, typically, like I said, typically they're just, um, licensing patents, but they, what they've decided to do, um, because one of the things that's happened in, in the recent years, especially with patent trolls is that uh, a lot of times they'll get ruled against because even though they own patents or whatever, they don't really make anything out of them. So basically, like I said, all they're doing is hoarding patents. So Wyland has decided to actually, you know, kind of go against this and start buying up companies that actually make things. So as far as what they're trying to do, um, that sounds like that'll probably be better for them because no, not only will they own the patents, um, they'll be working or own companies that are actually trying to make things using these patents. So when something comes up, if another company's wants to use their, you know, patent license or patents, or they're doing something like using patents without licenses, um, then it obviously gives us a better, the company, a better, um, foot to stand on, um, as far as lawsuits, if that's what it comes to. And then we have OBD2 dongles. So if you don't know what an OBD2 dongle is, basically there's a port, um, at least in the U.S. I don't know how, it should, I'm guessing it's something similar to cars outside the U.S. But anyway, there's a port basically under the steering wheel where you can con connect various um, devices. A lot of times if you go, if you have a problem with your car and you take it in to get it serviced, um, the people there at the car dealer or whoever you take it to will plug some, a computer into this and basically diagnose what's wrong with your car. They'll pull codes off of it and so forth. So there's other things that have come out for that for that particular port, like um, insurance companies will stick things on there to see how you drive. Um, there's other um, various things you can do um, collecting data off there. Um, the thing they do normally do, though, um, these devices, when they're connected to the OBD2 port, they're basically using Bluetooth to talk to an app on a mobile device. So in this particular story, um, they've actually figured out a way to... Um, hack the car um, via whatever Bluetooth device was connected to the OBD2 port. So in this case, it was the product Bosch drive log. So they were able to, first they were able to um, brute force the authentication between the um, device and the mobile, the app on the mobile device using Bluetooth. So once they were able to do that, they were actually able to connect straight up to the device that was connected to the OBD2 port. Um, and then in that case, they were able to actually, once they got to that point, they were able to actually inject um, any kind of malicious packet into the CAN bus um, on the car. So if you're into uh, car hacking or, you know, just um, Bluetooth hacking or whatever, um, pretty interesting story. And then last but not least, there was an article on, basically it was called 15 Idiotic IoT Devices. Now, I don't know if all of these are idiotic. I mean, some of them sound like they might have actually been useful. But anyway, we'll uh, go with the article. So the first one up was Tracks. Um, so basically, I think it was something similar to Fitbit. Um, the next one was Hydrate Spark. It's a smart water bottle that glows to make sure that you never forget to drink your water again. Um a not sure how to pronounce it Karastasi's hair coach so it's a smart hairbrush that uses a gyroscope and accelerometer and the microphone to listen to your hair to see if you're brushing it all wrong um yeah okay 
Uh, number four was Eggminder. Uh, number five, i.con. So the description is, don't forget the devices that bring the internet right to your pants. Um, so obviously this is, uh, or apparently this is some kind of uh, sexual aid or sex toy. Um, the next one is WeVibe. Again, this is a sexual, uh, some kind of sexual toy. Um, Garageo. Amazon Dash, and I think they're, yeah, they're talking about the Amazon Dash buttons. So I don't know if those are, I haven't, I don't have any of those. I use Amazon a lot, but I don't have any of the buttons. So I don't know whether they're really good or bad. Uh, Nespresso's Prodigio, a Bluetooth connected coffee machine. Um, Shutter Ease, a smart plantation shutter relieves you of the horrific burden of getting you close to your shutters after a long day of blogging. No idea what that is. Blue, Blue Smart Luggage, um, Connected Carry-On Luggage, uh, Griffin Toaster, uh, Griffin Mirror, Cloud Pets. Um, let's see, it says there are many connected toys for kids in the market, including stuffed animals and sick robots. So I guess this is a connected pet. Um, then apparently flip-flops. Um, yeah, so those are 15 apparently idiotic IoT devices. Okay, so let's move on to information security. So the article I have up first, and I don't have a lot of information on this one right now. Um, this will be something I'm trying to uh, get involved in. Um, so Smart, a company called Smart Cognition, um, they're basically saying that they have some product or a product that uses AI um, for detecting malware. So instead of using uh, or being signature-based, um, they're basing you AI to... Um, Tech malware, and they're basically saying this is 99% effective. So, again, the company is called Spark Cognition, and I think they have a beta that you can actually um, try to get into. I sent an email to them saying, Hey, I'd like to be part of this beta because I'd like to try it out. So, we'll see where that goes. Um, and then, if it goes anywhere, I'll report back on that. Um, I know you've probably heard this one you know, thousands of Windows hosts are being hacked using some of the um, tools from the leaked NSA hack and um, some of these, a lot of these uh, Windows hosts are basically being um, taken over using the uh, double Pulsar um, software. So if you've got your Windows machines out on the internet and you don't already have them locked down, then uh, definitely need to do so. However, if you've got them out on the internet and they're not locked down already, they've probably been taken over by something else um, before this happens. So, um, yeah, be careful with your Windows host on the internet. And then there was an interesting story that went into using corporate email for command and control and exfiltration. So in the case that normal channels of command and control, um, such as like web ports or DNS traffic, don't work, and apparently there is a scenario um, where you can use corporate webmail um, to actually... Um, Put command and control into effect so the article goes into quite a bit of detail on that so that's something if you're interested in then uh, definitely check out the article and then we have another threat intelligence report this one is by rapid seven so again this is one that came out just this month so probably another interesting read and this the links to this will be in the show notes obviously or you can just search for it in google i'm sure you can find it pretty easy um, but one of the things that came out of this particular report was that APT attacks are basically still occurring, obviously, um, but they're kind of like a low, consistent hum um, on the Internet. So, you know, they continue to happen. They're not really, like, 
you know, sticking their nose out or or whatever. Um, but they're just kind of kind of there. So just something to be aware of. Um, if you got things out on the internet, um, you know, obviously you need to secure these things um, for all kinds of different varying reasons. Reasons, but um, anyway, as far as APT goes, um, you know, Rapid Seven's basically saying. You know, yeah, it's just out there and it's just, you know, continuing on and just kind of, um, it's just there all the time. And then we have Bose, the um, stereo company, you know, headphones, um, that sort of thing. So apparently they've been accused of tracking customers' listening habits. So their particular product, their headphones, Quiet Comfort 35, um, which connects via a smartphone app. Um, apparently the application, I don't think there's actually anything that's smart or the headphones themselves aren't directly internet connected, but it's the smartphone app. So the smartphone app is basically is creating or or, uh, collecting, um, various, um, pieces of user data, you know, what they're listening to, you know, how they're listening, how long, that sort of thing. So, which for me, I don't know whether it's really all that big a deal. Um, if they know what I'm listening to, or I don't even know why anybody would care what I'm listening to. Um, but I think the big thing is that really got them in trouble is the fact that they were actually collecting this data. And I think without um, actually people knowing they were collecting it and actually selling it to a market research company. Um, I think in one of the companies they sold it to was segment.io. So that's probably going to be the thing they, they're going to get them in trouble is they're actually taking this data, um, collecting it, not letting people know they're collecting it, and then um, selling it to marketers. So just another... Um, yeah, just another instance of uh, companies deciding that they just want to collect all this data and not tell anybody about it, so they can uh, make a buck off of it, make a buck off of it, on the back end. And this, then this next story is um, really interesting. Um, I don't know. You know, I've tried to come up with the ways why this why this would be a good thing, um, but pretty much everything I come with come up with was is just bad reasons not to do this. So Mastercard, in a in a an attempt to try to curb uh, credit card fraud, they're basically adding a fingerprint sensor to payment cards. So now not only um, will the card have the chip and pin, um, it'll also include a fingerprint scanner of some sort. So I'm assuming in order to um, verify this actually you using the card, then it's going to have to store store those fingerprints in some form or another so it can actually make sure it is you. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons why this is probably bad. I mean, the, I mean, like I've said in podcasts before, honestly, I think the whole payment card, plastic cards, credit cards, that sort of thing is completely broken at this point. So it seems like they're just basically trying to add anything they can onto this thing, um, which will probably turn out to be worse. I don't know. Maybe it'll be better. I don't know, but it'll probably end up turning out worse for credit cards having this thing on here because now, now I've got, uh, if I've got a card like this and now I've got my fingerprints, I assume stored on the car, some card somehow or another. So if somebody figures out how to get those off the card, now they've got fingerprints. Um, the other thing I was reading in the article is that you actually, um, you probably have to actually go to a bank to actually do this. So there's all kinds of obstacles to actually getting people to use this. If it actually does in fact make the card more secure. Um, yeah, I just, in my, in my head, I just come up with a whole bunch of, um, reasons why this is probably a bad idea. Um, but again, like I said, I think it's just, um, I think they're basically the card companies are just struggling to try to curb credit card fraud in any way they can. And I don't know in this particular instance, I don't know if they're making things worse or better, but, um, I guess we'll see. 
And then we have a couple stories of data breaches. So the first one, they're calling it a data breach, but it's not necessarily that a hack happened. But apparently in London, a the Metropolitan Police, they have a database, of obviously, of firearm and shotgun owners um, in the UK. Because um, if you live, I mean, if you know how gun laws work in the UK, I mean, they're like far more stricter than they are in the US, and it's really hard to get, get a particular... Um, um, license for having a firearm or shotgun in your house. So anyway, so the police force wasn't actually hacked, but apparently they decided to take this database, which is about 30,000 um, people, 30,000 addresses um, for firearm and shotgun owners, and basically sent all this information to a direct mail marketing agency um, for an advertising campaign, campaign. Why they actually did this, uh, or who actually thought this was a good idea, I don't know, but... Um, I'm sure the uh, Metropolitan Police in London are they have some uh, serious um, questions to answer after this. And then also in data breaches, the Intercontinental Hotel chain, um, apparently they've got a pretty big breach going on. Um, and this one's actually, it's not just, um, like in the previous example, it's not just um, um, data on like people who own guns or whatever obviously in a hotel, but it's, uh, basically it's credit card breach. So, um, if you're not familiar with Inter Intercontinental, the hotel chain, which I didn't actually realize they had the, this many companies were involved with this and they own some of these, but they have like a dozen brands and they include like Holiday Inn, Holiday Inn Express, um, obviously the Intercontinental, um, Kempton Hotels and Crown Plaza. So anyway, so if you've stayed at, um, any of these particular hotel chains and you might want to make sure you keep track of um, um, any credit card usage um, that you had there. And then we have the story where apparently there are some um, enterprising individuals offering up um, ransomware as a service. So something similar to software as a service for $175, um, you can buy some uh, ransomware software. Um, so yeah, so if you're, uh, looking to do that, then, uh, your prayers have been answered and there's uh, ransomware as a service on the internet now for $175. So enjoy that. And then we have the puny code phishing attacks. So basically if you don't know what, um, or if you haven't heard of puny code, um, basically it's special encoding used by web browsers to convert, um, Unicode characters to the limited character set that's part of, um, that is ASCII too. So basically A through Z and zero through nine. So long story short, basically someone, someone was able to register a domain, um, name, which was, I believe it was XN, I think dash dash like eight, OAK6AA92E.com. And because of the issues with Punicode in the browsers, the particular vulnerable, vulnerable browsers, basically a lot of vulnerable browsers were basically showing this as apple.com. Um, so the vulnerable web browsers at this uh, at the part at the time the article was written were Chrome, Firefox, and Opera. Um, however, I think at this point, um, they've all been fixed. I think Firefox last week, at the end of the week, I think Firefox might have still been vulnerable. Um, I don't remember if they still are or not, um, but I think the other browsers have basically fixed this. So, yeah, pretty interesting that um, uh, somebody was able to find this um, particular um, issue with the web browsers. 
And then last but not least, under information security, there was a survey put out by the firm CGI and Oxford Economics, which basically suggests that the impact of breaches on a on the price of a company's stock is actually bigger than what most people expect. Um, for myself, um, given how many breaches there are, I think people have basically kind of gotten numb to the whole um, data breach um, scenario. And I don't know... I mean, for my in my own head, I don't really think it um, affects stock price that much. But um, again, it's not like I've done any scientific uh, research on this. But apparently, they did some research and they found that, like I said, it's it's more than expected, and apparently that depresses the um, price investors pay for stock by almost two percent. Which um, you know, depending on the price of stock, could be a lot or it might not be that much. Um, but again, all this comes down to a lot of this comes down to the thing um, companies should be doing already you know how much how much do you want to spend um you know defending your you know network or whatever you know you've got to come up with um you know what do you think the so if something bad does happen you know how much do you think it's really going to cost you so if you have a breach or whatever how much how much damage do you think it's going to do? So if you think it's going to do $10,000 worth of damage, um, then it really doesn't make any sense to, you know, sense to go spend a hundred grand on defense or a million dollars or whatever. If you think the outcome of someone breaching your company, you know, given what kind of data you might hold and all that sort of thing, isn't going to be that bad. Um, but I mean, that's spending money on cyber defense. Um, but if you're a public company, you know, while spending 10 grand on or you know spending 100 grand on something that might only have a $10,000 um damage effect on you might not make any sense if you're a public company um you know and your stock price is pretty high then a 2% drop um may might make it worth it um but anyway um it's probably an interesting read um like i said it's just something it's kind of counterintuitive to what i might have thought was going on because i just like i said i thought people um, we've kind of gotten numb to the whole data breach um, news and really don't pay much attention to it anymore. Okay, so moving on to the uh, tech part of the podcast. So first up, a um, couple stories um, from Apple. So they basically want to start making future iPhones from purely recycled materials. So instead of mining new materials, um, you know, all the rare, rare earth metals that go into like iPhones and other um, electronic devices they want to start using purely recycled materials, which obviously that sounds like it's a, would be a good thing. Um, but we'll see how that goes. Um, then kind of on the flip side of this, um, Apple, a story came out that Apple was forcing recyclers to basically shred all iPhones and MacBooks. So I guess that kind of works out for basically what they want to do where, so if you get an old iPhone or MacBook, basically if you're able to shred all that stuff and break it back into its core components, um, then you can um, use that stuff in new products. But basically, Apple doesn't want any um, any of their old products that are taken to recyclers um, to be have the lifespan of those products expanded um, by you know taking parts, certain parts that might still be good in broken computers and putting them in other ones um, to get them to work and so forth. Instead, they just want them to shred them all. So um, I guess there's some <coughs> excuse me some good and bad. Um, and some of these things that um, Apple's wanting to do with um, uh, recycling their old products. 
And our next story comes from uh, Amazon where they are opening up the voice control technology behind Alexa. So that's pretty cool. So if you don't have a device that uses Alexa, uh, you should definitely try that out, especially the one um, devices from Amazon because they do a really good job. Um, at least, you know, given how young the technology is now, um, they do a pretty impressive job um, as far as recognizing voices and requests and that sort of thing. So basically software and app, app developers will be able to use the technology that um, is behind Alexa Assistant. Um, so, and Amazon's basically going to use this as a way to collect um, more and more data um, as far as the use of Alexa goes so they can basically improve the product. So uh, something pretty cool from Amazon. And then we have something called perceptual ad blocking. So this was developed by Princeton and Stanford researchers. So, and it's not meant to win the ad blocking war, but it's basically meant to put um, advertisers back on their heels. So just to give you a quick explanation of it, um, again, it's called perceptual ad blocking. So perceptual ad blocking, it seeks to improve resilience against ad obfuscation and minimize manual effort needed to create ad blockers. So we rely on the key insight that ads are legally required to be clearly recognizable by humans. To make the method robust, we deliberately ignore all signals invisible to humans, including URLs and markup. So instead, we consider visual and behavioral information. For example, an ad may include the text sponsored or closed ad within its boundaries, either directly or when hovered, hovered over. And um, given that, they expect perceptual ad blocking to be less prone to an arms race. So anyway, so that was just a little excerpt from um, um, the researchers as far as what perceptual ad blocking um, is supposed to be. So we'll see how this goes um, and see what kind of new apps or plugins um, arise from this. And then we have yet another um, negative story on Uber where allegedly they were tracking uh, mobile devices even after a user had deleted the Uber app from their phone. Um, I think an update to the story has been that Uber, obviously Uber's denied these charges, um, but this is something, a story that's just happened. So I guess we'll see how this one particular, this particular um, allegation against Uber goes. But yeah, it's just not been a good time for Uber with all the um, bad things that have been going on. Um, personally, I've stopped using it. The app's been deleted from my phone. So uh, yeah, I'll be interested to see if they were actually doing anything um, as far as tracking users who had um deleted their uber accounts and then yet again another story about john deere i mean we've mentioned john deere um, in previous podcasts where they're basically you know fighting farmers who want to repair their tractors and basically claiming copyright and that farmers don't have any right to repair and all that sort of thing so in this latest one apparently um, john deere told the copyright office that only corporations can own property and humans can only license it so basically what they're getting at is that, um, well, and it's not just John Deere, actually. So it's there's other auto manufacturers. I mean, because um, they're doing something similar, you know, John Deere, they've got software running on cars and so forth now, um, just like John Deere's got software running in tractors. Um, but basically they're all, they're all arguing that um, since the gadgets you buy have software and since the software is licensed and not sold, you don't really you don't really own any of this stuff. Um, so and you're basically just a licensee. 
and you have the um, you have the right to use the whatever device you use according to license terms. Um, and a lot of times these license terms um, basically say where you have to buy your services, parts, and um, consumable apps, and so on. Um, so again, um, in line with what John Deere has been basically fighting with farmers about, where they don't have any right to repair or make any modifications to the particular product they've um, paid for. And then finally, just a few random items to close out the podcast. Um, so Formula One will be back racing um, this coming weekend in Russia. Um, the original StarCraft is free. Um, so if you don't know what StarCraft is, it's a multiplayer game um, from 20 years ago. Um, just an awesome game from back in the day. Um, but if you definitely if you want to check it out and uh, have a go at it, um, it's free now. And some guy made a robot that targets eyeballs and fires a laser. So, you know, what could go wrong with that? Um, I think the laser in the story, I think the laser that it actually fires is is pretty low power. So it actually doesn't do any damage. But, uh, you know, somebody ramps that thing up. Uh, that'd be kind of bad. Google Home can now recognize more than one person. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, can't wait till uh, Amazon's products do the same thing. Um, Amazon, their devices can now add events to your Google calendar, uh, which is actually, a, or apparently it's something Google's devices actually can't do right now. Um, there's a project on GitHub, which is just really cool. It's called Awesome Hacking. that just has all kinds of different uh, hacking repositories on there. So definitely check that out um, if you're into uh, pen testing and so forth. Um, then finally, Verizon sees record subscriber losses to T-Mobile. Um, so if you don't know what was going on with T-Mobile, they've had like huge like um, um, incentives, um, plans to get people to convert from like Verizon and AT&T. Um, actually, I did the same. I actually did um, convert over from AT&T. Uh, it saved me a ton of money. Um, and actually, the network's better and faster, at least in my area. Um, so anyway, that is it for the podcast for this week. If you have any comments, suggestions, um, I can be reached at CraigZ28 on Twitter. You can also email me um, at the address podcast at iotthisweek.com. And then just to mention, too, if you don't have time to listen to the podcast, um, I'll be or I am putting out a weekly newsletter, IOT This Week newsletter um, that goes along with the podcast. Um, definitely, you know, check that out. Um, if you make it to my site, you can sign up for that newsletter. Um, and then you don't have to listen to the podcast and uh, just kind of glance through whatever the latest news is for IOT, IOT this week. That's it uh, for this show. I'm Craig Smith. Um, have a great day and we'll see you next week.